This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody, wherever you are. This is Trevor. Actually, Paul, Paul how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing well. Yeah, off to a good start this morning. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it, too. We're doing this uh, on, a, on a Sunday morning this time around because our, our Saturday mornings have gotten a little bit busy. Um, is this schedule, you know, I don't know if, how, if we'll be able to do it too often, but right. you know, does, this, does this feel more rested to you or are you like, oh man. <laughs> yeah, no, so far I think it feels about the same. I don't notice too many differences, but yeah, it's funny how, like we've talked about with all of our kids, various things and everything, we're definitely having to, nobody can say we're not flexible now. Right. <laughs> we are capable it, of more than Saturday mornings. <laughs> there we go. There we go. And it's our kids that make us more inflexible. Um, yeah. Actually, because that right. seems to be a good time to be able to do things. But um, yeah, and this is this is Labor Day weekend in the U.S. So, you know, recording on a Sunday morning doesn't feel quite as, you know, the shadow of the work week hasn't isn't quite as dark <laughs> exactly. uh, as it normally is on a Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a very good point. It definitely helps to still have a whole day tomorrow to kind of do whatever. So yeah, we'll enjoy yes. it while we have it. Well, let me just make a quick announcement to everybody. Uh, Paul and I have released our August bonus episode for Patreon listeners, and we talked about movies on this one. Mm-hmm. It, it still felt like a pretty bookish conversation to me <laughs> right Even though we're talking about movies i don't know like maybe we can't quite get aw- away from that but that's okay yeah you know we weren't talking about like the mcu and our favorite action sequences or anything like that no if you decide to go in that direction we might have to look elsewhere for your other podcast partner because i don't think i would do too much there <laughs> i don't think david uh, blakesley does very much of that either you know yeah um, <laughs> the, the closest we got was i remember i don't remember which mcu movie it was but there was some big you know marvel movie coming out several years ago mm-hmm. and we took that opportunity to talk about the films of robert downey senior mm, <laughs> these experimental funky films from the 1960s and we thought man this is really going to be a hit among the kids you know <laughs> exactly that's our target demographic anyway so it makes sense right. that you would really go after him. <laughs> right david came wearing his hulk hands and i had my <laughs> thor hammer you know as we were you know <laughs> uh, but anyway that was a fun conversation and toward the end of it i said i was going to go off and and watch kelly reichert's first cow yeah and i know you asked how did that go and i i didn't answer not because i was trying not to answer but it just I kept on thinking, oh, I need to tell Paul. I need to tell Paul. Well, here you go, Paul. Okay. You should watch that movie. Yeah. It's very good. It's very slow in parts in a way that I think we both like. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't slow in an agonizing, man, this is boring. How much time do I have left? It was slow in a, boy, this is really capturing something and making me think. And and I, I really liked it. The tone of it is so soft and and cozy and intimate while it's still quite hard you know it's hard going mm-hmm. and uh yeah very much recommended especially as we gear up for her forthcoming film whenever we might have a chance to see it <laughs> i know when you told me that that she has another one coming out i got excited so it sounds like i have two that at least two right now pending that i haven't watched so there you that's go. a good thing so it sounds like that one tied in well or at least you could tell it was within her universe of movies yep. it felt like her yeah very much That's a kelly great. reichert film which is so encouraging you know to see a film like that being made these days i mean people say that they just only make marvel movies i get why that's the impression but this is a very 
quiet, intimate film. I'm sure it didn't make a ton of money, mm-hmm. but it was so nice to see it being made. Well, and I just appreciate so. someone like her. Like you said, it doesn't make a lot of money probably, but I appreciate that to some degree when an artist is willing to continue to do mm-hmm. those types of movies, knowing that they're not going to be a big cash grab, but they, you know, not, not saying they couldn't branch out, but I like when they do stick to their, their vision or however you want to say mm-hmm. it, it's kind of reassuring. So, so even the film that won best picture this past year, Coda is a very quiet, small film. Again, I don't know how many people actually saw it, um, but it's definitely a, an artist's vision and then we have Jane Campion uh, coming out with The Power of the Dog, which, uh, you know, a lot of people thought would win. She won Best Director. And that's its own little thing, you know, and quite surprising and and everything like that. So I don't know. There's there's good stuff being made, as I think we may have come to conclusion in that podcast. But mm-hmm. at any rate, there we go, everybody. There's a, maybe a little taste of our of our movie podcast that's available on Patreon. Again, it's a, it's available for Patreon supporters of any level. If you sub- sign up for a dollar a month, you get access to uh, that the, you know, all of these bonus episodes, as well as early access to these episodes as they come out a few days before they go out to general listeners. Um, and it's it's always a delight to see people over there. Absolutely. And then also, please remember, go ahead and sign up for our newsletter at Substack. And the, the link will be in the show, you know, in the, the show description, whatever podcast uh, listening device you use should be available on there. And I think that's a nice way to keep in touch as well. It's free and we only send out our newsletter every couple of weeks when the episodes go up. So we're, we're trying not to spam anybody or turn that into its own other other type of thing. It's it's a I, I hope it's a good thing. People can give feedback on that as they would like. Yeah. That's something I need to do a better job of. Trevor, you've been kind of carrying the brunt of that. Not in a bad way. I mean, I think you really enjoy it. It might be in a bad way. People (laughs) might be like, we wish Paul would jump in here. This is getting really old to read Trevor's uh, very mediocre descriptions of these things. (laughs) Not true. Not at all true. No, I I do need to do a better job, though, of of kind of chiming in more often. But no, you've been doing a great job. And yeah, it's like like you've said, it's fun because people can reply or comment and there's all kinds Mm -hmm. of ways to interact. And that's something we always love to do. Well, let's take a quick little uh, moment here to see what you've been reading lately, Paul. Yeah, you will be happy to hear this. I um, clear back on our planning out the year episode. I told you that I was planning on at least one really big book this this year, The Brothers Karamatov. And as we turn the calendar over to September, I started getting that fall feeling where I'm mm-hmm. inclined to kind of look towards classics and big books. And I decided now's the time. So I'm, you know maybe 7,500 pages in, still mm. pretty early on, but um, really enjoying it so far. It's, I don't know, getting we talk about... to know uh, that family a little bit. Getting to know that family, exactly. And it's just all these interesting asides right now where they're in the monastery and there's the elder and they're starting to, you know, interact with him. And then he's kind of holding court with all these different people who've come to see him. And just, you can feel the cast of characters expanding like it always does in a good Russian novel. So I've had my little notebook and... <laughs> you know, I've I've kind of uh, decided, at least to some degree, a pencil writing in the margins. I think just a few episodes ago, I was still on the fence. I think I'm all all in. So especially <laughs> on a novel like this, underlining and starring and writing little notes, just because when I've read other books, you know, including one that I'll talk about later today, big Russian novels, um, 
I've come to realize you can get lost so quickly just with all of the the different, um, you know, in the Russian naming system, how there's the different versions mm-hmm. of the same name and it, it's easy to get confused. So I, I've noticed just a few notes here and there can go a long way towards kind of keeping that continuity. So anyway, I've been reading that. I've been reading the uh, Pavir and Volokonsky translation, which I know some people have strong feelings about one way or the other. I've always had really good luck with their stuff as a complete monoglot who has no idea what it would actually sound like in the original <laughs> Russian. But um, yeah, so far I'm loving that. So I will continue to report back. Awesome. Yeah. I'm very excited. I think I've mentioned that that's one of my favorite reading experiences. I still remember a lot of different places where I was when I read certain passages and I remember purchasing it, you know, the little signet classic, which wasn't super little, you know, it was still small, small size, but very thick. Yeah. And like a little I'm brick. Positive that it was the Constance Garnett uh, translation. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, I just really loved everything about that, that book. And so, yeah, excited to hear how it goes for you. Yeah, I'm excited too. How about you? What are you reading these days? So I am reading The Trees by Percival Everett. Oh. That came out last year and is now up for the Booker Prize. It's on the long list. The short list um, is getting announced. Might even be announced by the time this episode goes out. I can't quite remember the exact date for that. But this is, uh, you know, one of the American authors, again, mm-hmm. <laughs> who's on the yeah. list. <laughs> and right. I didn't know anything about this book until it got put on the long list. And at that point I learned that it was set in money, Mississippi and had some bearing on the Emmett Till murder back in the, you know, 1950s. Mm. That's about all that I knew. And I didn't know how much of a role that played, you know, it sounded like it might just be, if you know, then you'll see that that's kind of got a shadow over the book. But no, man, this is all about that, and really? quite in a surprising way. I've been, I've been, I was blown away by the premise as I learned it, and I don't quite know how much you know. If, if readers don't want to learn anything, I mean, what I'm about to say happens in the first few chapters, and they're very short chapters. You know, I think there's it's a short book, and I think there's like 130 chapters, you know, oh, wow. and so it's very short, and this happens in the first very few. But if you don't want to to know anything more and go into this blind, then go ahead and do it. It was kind of a a shock to see what was going on. But what's happening is you get to know these two families in the first chapter, the Bryants and the Millams. And if you know your Emmett Till history, um, that's the last name of the individuals who murdered Emmett Till, the two men. And the the woman um, was uh, a Bryant, the woman who accused Emmett Till of you know, flirting with her, touching her and, and all of that, uh, all of that garbage as it turns out. Um, not that it ever excused anything that happened, of course, but that it also is based on an absolute lie. Uh, but at any rate, uh, that's their families. And so you're kind of seeing them and Percival Everett is certainly, you know, satirizing their personalities and their, their culture and their, or or rather lack of culture. And, and then one of the sons ends up dead uh, in quite a gruesome manner. And next to him is lying the body of a dead black man. And then they take him both off to the morgue, trying to figure out what happens. And the body of the black man disappears. 
a few chapters later, the other one, you know, the other uh, male patriarch of the family, you know, not not one of the ones that, that committed the murder, but certainly, you know, a descendant, um, ends up dead in the same way with the body of the dead black man showing up again. Hmm. And that's such a bizarre premise for a book to me, uh, but it's pretty powerful. I can't read any passages because, frankly, most of them would have language that would kick us right out of the explicit rating. <laughs> Right. Uh, maybe going overboard to the, you know, the prohibited or, or whatever. It's, it's, it's very racist language and, um, and a lot of general, uh, profanity or, or vulgarity anyway, but also very racist language throughout. Uh, but Percival Everett is not shy of, of confronting these things. Mm-hmm. It, it feels very much like a, a satire, but it's very grounded in some, you know, I don't know, hard things. It's, I don't quite know where it's going yet. I'm about halfway done. And I, I have no idea what's going on in terms of how all this is playing out or if there is even going to be an explanation. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, it's an interesting examination of, of those events. And one that I would recommend to anybody kind of looking for, for something short, but that'll slap you upside the face and sounds like it yeah yeah percival everett is an author that wasn't even on my radar a couple years ago and Mm -hmm. then i feel like over the last couple of years even before this booker listing i've heard just so much about him and so i earlier this year i read so much blue a novel by him and i thought it was really good and so i'm based on that and the description you just gave i I know that I need to continue to explore more of his stuff. He has quite a few books out. Yeah, I think like 16 or something yeah. like that. I was mm-hmm. pretty surprised, but I had the same thought of, I need to read all of these. Mm-hmm. Someone on the Goodreads forum, um, Las Cosas, I believe that she said he used to be um, an, an immediate buy kind of author. And that, that even though he's not that anymore, it's not because of anything he did. It's just there, you know, something happened, missed one or two and, uh, but wanted to get back to doing that. And I thought, well, if, if that's kind of how he's been for you, someone that I really respect your taste and your, uh, you know, your good opinion, uh, I need to, to get in on, on this and, yeah. and learn from him. Well, I'll be curious to hear what you think as you finish that one, because it's, one that I've been thinking about picking up soon. So it sounds very intriguing. So I started it on the audiobook, mm-hmm. just so you know, which was okay. read so slowly, you know, and it, it's got this Southern accent and I, it's nothing against it, but I couldn't take how long it took to go through one of these short sections. Right. So I, I just went and bought it so that I oh. could, could read it on my own. I was able to still have that effect. And, and I think it's one that I, I prefer doing it that way. Um, it's just one that there's a lot going on in the text itself, even though it feels simple. And I think it's getting some slack for, you know, what's this doing on the booker list? This is very mundane prose. And I just don't believe that it's a different kind of prose. There's a lot going on in it. And, um, but, but at any rate, I, I might recommend, you know, maybe give it a taste. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would recommend just grabbing it and reading it rather than listening to this one. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. That's something I've been kind of wrestling with because I tend to, as I've said before, have an audiobook going, you know, at any given time while I'm reading other things. And it's one thing I like about, you know, the Libby app is mm-hmm. the, the range of how you can speed it up. And it's amazing. Some some readers, you can go as fast as like 1.75 or even 2.0. And they, <laughs> it almost sounds like just normal 
pace of, <laughs> of, of the conversation. And then other ones like, you know, 1.25 is sounding a little too fast. So it's amazing how much of a difference a, a reader or a narrator can make on those. I've never fiddled with the speeds of things. I need to try that sometime. I you know a lot of people it. do it. 1.25 as a general rule for me is almost perfect because it doesn't sound rushed, but mm-hmm. it definitely speeds up those, you know, especially when you have a slow reader, it makes yeah. it sound a little less painful. Some of them can just be like, I used to listen to audiobooks all the time on CD and you would get one that would be like, you know, 16 <laughs> or 20 CDs and you're like, okay, it's time to commit because you just know it's going to be a long time, but. So I'd, I've never sped something up, but when I listen to podcasts, I use the Overcast app, which mm. allows you to select a, a, a feature that cuts out the blank space. Oh, interesting. And I've never noticed any problems with that, but there might be a pause between um, people talking. It doesn't do it in such a way that it's one sentence right after the other. You know, it shortens them, I guess, more. Hmm. And that's something I've really liked. And it, it counts to how much time you've, you've saved by using that feature. Oh, I mean, I'm, I've like saved, you know, days and days, maybe even <laughs> months by this point of, of podcast listening by, by using that. It doesn't speed up the voices and it's never felt choppy. That's a very natural feature. It's, that's it's cool. pretty impressive. But I wonder if anybody uh, who listens to our podcast, it might make no difference because I'm not sure we ever have dead air time between the two of us. We're always... <laughs> One I'm of sure us stops we, talking, sure the other we one. <laughs> we All never right. shut up. <laughs> Let's go on to our topic today. We are here to talk about epic reads. And Paul, you're the one who suggested this topic. Mm-hmm. And we've spent the last month or two trying to figure out what the heck that means. What yeah. does it mean to have an epic read? I mean, clearly we could look at like epic fantasy or epic poetry. Those are clear, you know, genres but when you just say epic read, and then you kind of clued me in that you aren't just talking about, like, it certainly doesn't mean the book has to be long. I yeah. almost suspect you could have a short story and still make it, an, it fit into your epic read. So let's try and, and untangle this a little bit. What mm-hmm. are we, When we're talking about epic reads, what are we talking about? Or maybe better yet, Paul, what are what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, the more I've thought about it, the less I have any idea what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> no, um, I mean, when I first suggested this, I think I was thinking in about as broad of a sense as I possibly could. I think I was thinking, you know, big, initially big, sprawling, you know, those books that just leave yeah. you feeling changed for whatever reason. But the more- The size we, has something to do with it. Absolutely. But then the more I've, thought about it and talked about it, I think to your point, and I, this is one that I'm, I thought about bringing up as one of my five books today, but I'm not going to, and this will shock everyone to hear me say train dreams again by Dennis Johnson. (laughs) But like, for example, that one on the back cover says an epic in miniature. And I Mm -hmm. really like that phrase. And I, you and I have chatted a little bit off air not too much about that book in particular and the idea of whether or not a book of that size could be an epic. So I guess as I was trying to kind of suss all this out, a few things that I was thinking of that come to mind for me when I'm thinking of an epic is the scope of the book, often mm-hmm. the length, but not necessarily. One thing I thought of was the ambition of the author, you know, what they set out to do, um, the span of the book. And then often, not always, but often a lot of these epic books seem to hinge on these historical moments that are kind of big shifts or changing like the way that the world is going to, to be. And I feel like that's a few reasons why something like Train Dreams could probably 
qualify in my opinion because ambition span and historical moments like it ticks some of those boxes where it's following one man's life but he happens to be living at this time where the country around him is transforming with you know a lot of technology and different things going on so you know like i said the more i've talked about it though like i'm like hmm i don't know this could go a lot of different directions i thought it would be kind of fun to talk about you know i looked up a few definitions and obviously like you said, epic poems is often the first thing that comes up. And so those elements of an epic are like the plot centers around a hero of unbelievable stature or, you know, ability, um, like often superhuman strength and valor, vast settings, sometimes supernatural or otherworldly forces, a sustained elevation of style. And then the poet remains objective and omniscient. So Mm -hmm. if you start at the very like core idea of what an epic poem is, you know, I think there's some carryover to the novels and other things that we talk about, but not, you know, straight, in my opinion. And that's not what the definition is that I'm looking for. But then I found another one that says a long film, book, or other work portraying heroic deeds and adventures or covering an extended period of time. And so I think when I first pitched it, that was probably the closest to like a general idea of what I was thinking. Mm hmm. So yeah, that that's kind of where I started with it. But again, I think this is we could take the whole episode probably just talking about the definition or our our, our ideas of it. What do you think? Well, so uh, you know, of course, the default is oh, you must be talking about something long. But there are long books that I wouldn't consider to be epics. Yeah. Um, at least as I was making this list, and so I thought, well, it must have something to do with maybe the the sense of time and place not Mm -hmm. necessarily the time it took me to read something but did i feel like the book took up a a certain space in my own history my own time uh do i feel like i lived it for a while but you're right i mean the 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 root definition and i'm looking on merriam webster is a long narrative poem so there is long there you know uh, there there is a bit of the length of the the art Mm-hmm. In elevated style, and I thought, okay, that mm-hmm. that's true. You got the heroic style and the of the the old poems, recounting the deeds of a legendary or historical hero, and then a work of art such as a novel or drama that resembles or suggests. And so, there's where we can play a little bit an yep. epic, and then you know there there's that sense of hero and the sense of nationhood. And the elevated style, I think all of that <clears throat> plays a role in in what makes an, an epic an epic. You know, I'm very curious what kinds of books we have each chosen so that we can maybe debate whether they are epics. Today's episode is not, here's what it is and here's why we're right. I think we're going to be saying, hmm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this thing is not actually an epic. Yeah. I think it'll be kind of fun. So listeners, we're very much interested in your feedback too. And in particular, here's something I'm going to confess from the outset. I felt like it was quite difficult to find books by or about women mm-hmm. um, in any list of what is epic. And even in my own you know, search through my own memories of things that I've read, um, I've come up with some that I really like that I think would fit. Not all of them are on my, my, you know, list of five, but we'll still, you know, we'll cheat and come up with, you know, we'll have our honorable mentions too. Right. And I, I'm curious about that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure some of it has to do with that, you know, the, the historicity of the word epic and 
the just you know some of the cultural baggage that that all of this comes with mm-hmm. but that was a bit of a struggle for me to to not just come up with maybe the the main ones i mean i could put the books of jacob on here by Olga tokarczyk mm-hmm. which i'm still reading that is certainly an epic but i haven't yeah. finished it yet <laughs> Right, working on it for a million years. I am so <laughs> stuck in that middle section. Um, I mean, I, I make progress on it and I'll read like 30, 40 pages in a day and I'm like, okay, I can do this again tomorrow and I don't. And yeah. I am enjoying it. But at any rate, I haven't finished that one yet. Certainly applies, but I don't know if it would make my list yet because, you know, it's it's not something that I'm necessarily feeling deep in my bones yet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the books I chose, I wanted to have that sense of, it affected me personally as well. Yeah. But no, it's really interesting. I've ran into the same issues of struggling to find women on these lists. And even as I was looking through my, my bookshelves for books that would kind of strike me. And so a couple of the books that I have today are, like you said, we're going to have fun debating and just talking about why it may or may not apply to a certain book. And in particular, one of the books that I chose by a female author I think is probably right on the line and and may not technically apply, but I think it's interesting to have that conversation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's going to be fun. Um, and so maybe let's talk numbers without dis- disclosing what our books are. H- how many of your books would you say are in an elevated style? I would say three, two, three. two to three. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious what you mean by that, you know. Um, yeah, don't ask because, me to define it. <laughs> <laughs> as I look at mine, you know, of course, none of them are poetry. None of them were written in, you know, iambic hexameter or anything. You know, it's not right. got any of these these things. Um, but I'm not sure any of them would necessarily be in kind of an elevated style, though I think they're stylistically quite impressive and beautiful. So yeah. I'm curious about that. How many of your books have to deal with nation historical events or, you know, national things? Because that that's that's kind of part of this word. You know, it is about uh, about a nation's epics. You know, I would say, yeah, probably right in that same range. I I would say two to three, like definitely two of them, and then I think a third one could probably qualify as well. See, and I'm on probably two, maybe three as well on that mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Um, how about uh, he- hero? You know, in, in um, any kind of sense that is dealing with a hero's journey or a hero. That's where it could get interesting. Um, <laughs> I would say in the strict sense of a hero, or at least some version of that, I would say probably... Uh, huh? Probably the same, about two two solid and maybe a third. Okay. Oh, I'm excited. And I, on mine I don't I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe the same. But mm-hmm. in each of them, I think there's an argument that could go both ways in, in I know. each and every one of the books that I'll bring up. Yeah. So. Me too. <laughs> Interesting stuff. Why don't we take a little bit of a break though, Paul? We have a giveaway both to announce and then I've got a new special one that I'm very excited about to, to open up, but you, you have a giveaway. We do want to, you want to kind of go through that and, and remind listeners what we're giving away this week. 
Yeah, so to remind everybody, the book that we are giving away this week is the third part of Rodrigo Frazan's The Part Trilogy, which I accidentally <laughs> called the Remembered Trilogy on our last episode, but no, it's The Part Trilogy, and it's called The Remembered Part. And these are just amazing books. I've only read the first one, but based on that and, and everything I've heard about the other ones um, from Open Letter, and they're just so much fun. There's there's magic and they're playful, but they also have you know, some very serious parts. I don't know. We, we could maybe debate whether they would be considered epic, either individually or mm. altogether. But um, yeah, so we are giving away the third one of those. I'm very excited. Um, and yeah, can't yeah. wait to figure out who wins this. Translated by Will Vanderheiden. Yes, thank you. Yeah, no, no worries. All right. Well, I have put the random number into the random number generator. And Paul, do you mind if I do the honors this week no, since you're I think the one you sending the book out? Absolutely. All right. Our winner this week is Emily Craddock. Emily, congratulations. Congratulations, Emily. We will get this book sent out to you. Uh, we'll be in touch to get your address, figure out where where we should send this. And I hope you'll let us know how the experience of reading it is. Yeah, and I'd be curious too if Emily has read one or both of the first two or if she's going to be collecting them in backwards order or how that goes because it's going to be fun i'm i'm really looking forward to revisiting that trilogy well and as we're talking about frisson did you ever be beyond um the part trilogy have you read any of the other ones that he has put out through open letter or anywhere else no i actually i haven't have you i have um the in fact it's only it looks like there's only the one it's the bottom of the sky and this, I loved it. So if people are thinking, I'd like to know who this fella is, but this whole trilogy thing, you know, looks kind of big or whatever. Um, this is also translated by Will Vanderheiden, and it came out in 2018. And I really, really, really loved it. It was, it's about, it's it's almost a, his, uh, a science fiction-y kind of book. Mm-hmm. Um, very fun, very well, well written, very stylish, stylish. In fact, the the description is a Kurt Vonnegut novel told by David Lynch, filtered through the madness of Philip K. Dick. So if any of that wow. appeals to you, I'd recommend, you know, maybe just trying out that one uh, and then getting into the trilogy. Yeah, that's a great advice because sometimes it can be so daunting when you're looking. You don't know if you want to commit to one big book, let alone three. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, <laughs> in my opinion, it's it's definitely worth investing in but that's a great idea to kind of get a little taster all right so i have a giveaway that i've been putting together for a little while with paul and it's that time of year folks uh last year one of my favorite episodes that we've recorded is our fall books episode i don't remember all the books we put on it whether i read any of them (laughs) but it was so fun to talk about fall reading and these you know this this time of year that we're about to enter into only it doesn't quite feel like it where i'm at it's labor day weekend and gonna be over 100 degrees here in utah and it's very unseasonal um very disturbing and Mm -hmm. certainly doesn't feel like fall quite yet but I'm going to force it anyway. <laughs> Maybe in a couple of weeks when we're back to announce the winner, it'll feel a little bit more like fall. And certainly by the time the, the box arrives at the winner's door, um, we should be in the end of September, beginning of October by that time. Definitely into that fall reading season. Yeah. So 
We thought it would be fun to celebrate this special time of year by putting together a fall reading gift box. And I'm excited about it. I've got a lot of things to throw in it. I've, I've gone around and picked out some treats and we're going to throw in a book. We're going to throw in some little knickknacks that just feel like fall uh, and hopefully help somebody have uh, the fun of opening that up and then of sitting down quietly on a fall day and enjoying some some fallish treats while reading a fallish book and so that's that's the gift uh, the, the giveaway this time is a i don't know it's not really a swag box it's not like we're giving away swag or you know merch or anything right. like that Luke's it's... in the gripes t-shirts yeah <laughs> oh here we go here we go this is our first big one um no it's just little little things you know again to kind of invite that time of year in and unfortunately, I'm going to have to limit this to people in the U.S. It's just, I think that the shipping costs alone are going to be prohibitive. Um, they, it's it's very expensive. Even to ship just a book um, out of the country, it's around $30, $40. And to ship stuff that has, you know, treats and other knickknacks in it, probably a lot more than that. And I don't even know the customs um issues with that or I I certainly don't want to make someone win and then pay charges on the other end of it for you know that um, fees and things like that so I don't don't even know if that would apply Uh, but at any rate we're going to just get around all of that by limiting this one to US uh, listeners only but we will return with something special that we will open up for uh, international listeners very soon Um, so In order to enter this giveaway to win this fall book treat box, uh, please send an email to mooksandgripes at gmail.com or respond to the newsletter uh, and say that you are interested in entering the giveaway. However, there is going to be a little bit of of a thing here. You've got to tell me some of your favorite fall reading moments or memories or books something just tell me a little story give it a paragraph or so and i'd love to share some of what we get for the entries on our you know as we get in through the throughout the fall perhaps even you know as we go through this time of year uh, maybe not just in one go but maybe we'll we'll pepper them in as we you know go between now and november and before we get into the holiday season and winter. Yeah, I love So that. hopefully you'll do that. Uh, you know, again, please, please uh, go ahead and enter. For international listeners, if you still want to send some of your favorite book memories, maybe we can pick a few there to read and figure out a way to get you a treat of some kind, even if it's just from, you know, ordering it from somewhere local to you, <laughs> having it shipped to you. Yeah, I love that idea. <laughs> That way we're not totally leaving you out and also um, Nick, making it so that we don't get the benefit of your uh, favorite fall reading memories. So uh, everyone can send those in and I hope to, to hear from you. All right, Paul. To carry on with our conversation about epic books, we are going to share five books each that we thought of as we compiled this list, maybe with some trepidation about whether we'll get slapped down by each other about whether they are actually epic. Uh, right. But we're going to use this to, to discuss epic and and just fun reads anyway, you know, books that yeah. we've liked, of course, you know, that, that's the real excuse 
we just we want to get together and talk about books and it's it you know if we have a topic that can help us open that door we're going to make a mess of the room sometimes you know <laughs> so usually but let's go ahead and go forward i'm very curious if we have any overlap in our lists yeah but why don't you go ahead and give me your first one well i think my first one i'm safe that we won't have overlap just for the very same reason that you gave for the books of jacob because you are currently reading this one and it's oh. one that i've talked about before it was on my best books of the year list from last year um and it's don quixote Mm-hmm. Um, I figured that was going to be, you know, it's kind of a no brainer in some ways and it's sticking a little bit to maybe something that's fairly obvious, but at the same time, I think it opens up some interesting conversations because it's often described as a prose epic. And so that's where maybe one of the first times where they took this, you know, the, the epic poetry thing and started, someone started to look at what was involved and how that could be, you know, translated into other things. And in this case, into the novel. So, you know, I know I've gone into detail about this one quite a bit in previous podcasts, so I won't rehash too much about the content, but, you know, it takes a really fun and playful approach to the idea of an epic. Um, You know, Don Quixote, that's where when you were asking if he was an epic hero, it's like, well, (laughs) yeah, you know, in theory, it's kind of Don, or uh, it's kind of what uh, Cervantes was, was playing with was this idea of this grand style, but like poking fun at it and a grand hero and poking fun at him and a lot of the tropes that had come before, you know, with the high flute and language and, you know, these grand terms and everything like he, Mm -hmm. he uses it, but he, he tweaks it and, you know, definitely has fun with it. So yeah, that's the one that I started, you know, thinking about is just how he kind of is doing a send up of, of these nightly, you know, romances and a lot of these things. And, I thought it was kind of a fun way to kick it off because mm-hmm. a big part of the beginning of that book is Don Quixote's love of reading these these big epic poems and he gets so caught up in all of it that it just basically ruins his life. <laughs> and like burning. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I just thought that would be fun to kind of start the conversation here. Um, you know, it literally does start with, you know, a, a kind of a mocked up poem. Like the first page is kind of, Cervantes taking a, a poke at some of the, the language and stuff, which is pretty fun. And then I thought there was like this little section I'll just read real quickly um, where it talks about him launching out on his, his quest. And it says, and so having completed these preparations, he did not wish to wait any longer to put his thoughts into effect, impelled by the great need in the world that he believed was caused by his delay. For there were evils to undo, wrongs to right, injustices to correct, abuses to ameliorate, and offenses to rectify. And one morning before dawn on a hot day in July, without informing a single person of his intentions and without anyone seeing him, he armed himself with all his armor and mounted. And so I just thought, you know, when we're looking at like this idea of a grand quest and this hero going off to, to make these big, you know, changes in the world, you know, it, it definitely does tick a lot of those boxes. Um, and then I was just one other thing that I noticed that they said about this book in particular is it was one that actually kind of elevated an entire language and country worldwide. And that was another definition I saw for epics where it actually transforms kind of like the trajectory of a country mm-hmm. or a language. And so, you know, I mean, Don Quixote obviously has done that in numerous ways. So yeah, that was the first one I picked. Like I said, I know I've talked about it a lot before, so it felt a little bit like a cheat, but I still thought it qualified. Absolutely. I think it qualifies totally he is a hero right yeah. now I'm, I'm not all the way through it yet but let me just 
I'm reading the translation by Edith Grossman, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. It, and and I really do love sitting down with these uh, these characters and his language is so highfalutin as he talks, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> it's so it's so fun. It's so delightful and and has this comic tone to it and then all of a sudden you you realize man I'm feeling really sad too you know i mean there's a range of emotions and of yeah. events and of and it has people's coming together and hurting each other or helping each other in ways that are it, it's powerful i i really do love it and and i i have it on here as something to bring up in case you didn't but i hope oh, you good. would just yeah. to say hey i'm i would consider this i just haven't finished it yet <laughs> mm-hmm. No, so. exactly. It, like you said, it, it's easy to think of him as a caricature or of Pancho Sanza as mm-hmm. a caricature, but, and, and to some degree they are, but at the same time, like you said, there's so much depth there. And even as he's poking fun at this, like some of the realities of what he's talking about still do come through. It's a, it's really an amazing book. Yes, for sure. Um, are you ever, is this one that you think, Hey, I might even just pop back in every once in a while and, and read read it, you know, again, yeah. or, or read passages of it. Because I think that's something with these epics that I'm seeing on my list. I could probably pick them up and just read little passages and still feel back into the world in such a great, great way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Even every time I pick up, which I've done three or four times now for this podcast, when I start reading one of those passages like I just did, you just <laughs> remember how lively it is and how much fun and, and it's kind of hard to stop. I could have just kept going there. So yeah, absolutely. That's something that I would love to do. And if we ever have a, a podcast about rereading where we really dig into like our plans, I think that would be an interesting conversation of just that idea of dipping in and out of a book versus committing to reread the whole thing. All right. Well, let me give you mine. I don't know if you're going to, you know, here we go. I don't know if this is actually an epic or not, but I wanted to go back into my, my mind. And this was, you know, me thinking of big books and some of my big memories and some of these books that feel like I, like they're kind of my own memories, Mm -hmm. even though I've never done anything like this in (laughs) my life, you know, it's, it's this, this capacity that literature has to, make some of your favorite moments be things that happened to other people, <laughs> even mm-hmm. fake people. And this one just has that feel. I remember, I remember feeling the, the, the tragedy of this book on so many different levels. And it's the first really, 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 really big book that I ever read. And it's the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Yes. Have you ever read this one, Paul? I have, and same thing. I was I didn't have it on my list, but it was one that I wanted to bring up as because I I debated <laughs> adding it to my list, and I think it's I think it qualifies. I think it ticks a lot of those boxes that we talked about at the beginning of this episode. I feel like it could. I mean, it's the story of a man, Edmund Dantes. He start, starts out quite young. Um, boy, I want to say in his late teens at the beginning of the book. And he has all of these great prospects. And then he is betrayed and put into prison and loses out on so much of these prospects. And basically, as he as he is consumed in prison and, and working on a, on a great escape again, that, that whole passage again, that's that's me feeling like I was some once in in this 
in this prison. Not really, yeah. of course, but but the the intrigue of it, you know, I, I know this would not feel at all like if I were actually there. Right, right, right. <laughs> this is in a, in a heightened way, in a way that I can have fun with. <laughs> but I remember him, you know, festering and becoming more and more embittered and thinking, how am I going to have my revenge? And certainly there's the national aspect to this. You know, it's a big story, takes place on a big stage with, you know, Napoleon and not directly, but kind of there in the background. And big events in French history tend to be playing out again in the background of this Mm -hmm. book as these characters go back through their more intimate struggles. And this is also a book that I think introduces a theme that is throughout mine is this mixture of big moments and relating to multi, you know, nations or world, you know, as a whole, but they tend to focus on very intimate moments as well. And this book is, is very much that the, the reason I couldn't quite figure out if it's an epic in maybe a traditional sense is he's no real hero. You know, he mm. goes on a journey for sure. But it's doesn't necessarily you don't end this thinking, wow, that's who I want to be or look where it got him. Um, This whole his hero's journey seems to be uh, more in the making of kind of antihero almost. But love the story. Very exciting. It's been 30, 35 years since I read this book. I'd really like to to read it again um maybe maybe a relatively soon you know my boys are getting into high school and i think it's a great time to say hey here's this great big book that yeah. maybe we can we can all read together somehow and see if you guys like it as much as i did um they will probably look at me and think yeah right dad <laughs> maybe <laughs> but once they got that? in maybe but once they got into it i mean that book is so um it's just so adventurous and so like once you mm-hmm. get caught up in all the revenge and like you said, the escapes and the there's like the prison and everything. I mean, it's, it's yeah. pretty propulsive. So I think once you could get them hooked, I bet you they'd be in. Yeah. That's, that's one of my wife's favorite, very favorite books. And it was always my mom. So growing up, I heard a lot about it and it was this one and Wuthering Heights. And I couldn't wait for the day when I might sit down and read them too. She never pushed them on me, mm-hmm. but very much, you know, loved those experiences and loved that kind of connection that I had with my mom's favorite books as well. But, you know, one of my kids, I think, would 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 jump right into it. He, I think I told you, he's been going through Stephen King books mm-hmm. and he checked out It, which could could go on this list. I had kind of thought about it. Maybe mm-hmm. it's on yours. I don't know. But uh, um, the he read that in about a week and a half. Wow. Just blown away. And he, the thing is he'd sit and talk to me about it and he'd refer back, like he'd sit there and read a part and then go back. But then there's this part here and I'm oh, like, cool. what are you studying this thing? What is this? You know, it's supposed to just have some fun, read it and take a while. But he, he dug deep into this. Yeah. Book. Well, how old is he? About it. He's 14. See, that's almost exactly the age where I was when I read that book. And there is Probably something, I think that's one of those books, like we've talked about for me, that just, it kind of expands your idea of what literature can do when you mm-hmm. have grown up and you're around that age, you have certain thoughts and, or at least I did, had certain thoughts and views of what a book could do. And maybe a book like it is the one that starts to make you realize, wow, there's all this other stuff an author can do. 
Yeah. And talk about yeah. a book where I feel like I like that childhood in Derry, Maine in the 1950s, oh, again, feels like one of my own summers. <laughs> Absolutely. All that where they're down in the barrens and all that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about that. And like you said, it captures so many of the things that I did grow up doing, but also very different things from what I did. But they kind of blend together where it feels like you said, like you've lived that. It's amazing. So, yeah, that I mean, I think maybe something like the Count of Monte Cristo would be a good next step or in the next year, you know, kind of thing. Like yeah. cap- capture that momentum of big books and what literature can do and kind of show them it's been going on for a long time in different ways. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a horror novel for you to yeah. still get get into it and 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 read some pretty horrific things. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Took some so. of us longer than others to realize that. All righty. What's your next one, Paul? Well, I'm going to swap my order a little bit to kind of tie in to what you were just saying. And a couple, probably three of mine, I think, are kind of fairly safe bets. And so I thought, in some ways, Don Quixote is a fairly <laughs> safe bet. This one, I think, is a very safe bet, too. And it's War and Peace. Um, mm. You know, I mean, it's it's epic in every sense. And, and the reason I moved it to this part of the conversation is it does exactly what you were just saying where it focuses on these huge, broad historical moments, you know, the Napoleonic Wars, the futures of nations and the world are being shaped, but then he brings back the focus to very specific people, very intimate relationships. And he does that throughout the book. He, he basically zooms in, zooms out, zooms in, zooms out. And it's, I don't know. I mean, I haven't studied, you know, the history of, of those types of things, but I think it was probably fairly groundbreaking at the time. And it's something that's definitely influenced many other mm-hmm. books. And, and it's exactly what you were just talking about with the Count of Monte Cristo, where it kind of provides that interesting perspective where even though huge things are going on in the world, there are individual people who are making all of this happen or who maybe are just side players who aren't involved. Um, and it's interesting, too, because it focuses on true historical events historical people, you know, even Napoleon and other people that were very much real, but then there's also the fiction, fictional characters who are kind of interacting and going through this world. So, um, yeah, I think it's, in my opinion, it's, it's a no brainer. It's epic in every sense of the world word. I found a quote from Tolstoy where he was talking to Maxim Gorky and he says, without false modesty, it is like the Iliad. And you know, the fact that he, was just saying from the beginning, like that's what he was going for. You know, he was modeling it very much on one of the classic, you know, epics. So I think, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I know this could be interesting because you have tried it more than one time and have basically, it's the only time I think I've ever heard you say you're just fine with kind of realizing you'll probably never (laughs) read this one. Well, it was until you put it on this <laughs> list, and then I feel guilty again. Yeah. I've uh, not guilty, that. but my job is to always make you uh, want to read. <laughs> not out of guilt. Well, yeah, it's a book that I retired from our bucket list. Remember our bucket list mm-hmm. books episode, our very first episode? I talked about books that were once big ones on there, like maybe even number one spot. You know, this is the book I want to read before I mm-hmm. die. <laughs> and then it got to retirement after so many attempts. So yeah, I've never I've never made it through it. I've never, you know, I've watched the great 1960s um, Russian adaptation, loved mm-hmm. it, got to know the characters, thought it was fantastic and thought, okay, that's what I needed in order to read this book. And then I read the first 150 pages again and thought, how is it I still don't know who I'm reading about? 
Yeah. I just watched the series and I can, you know, if I do work, if I sit there and like, okay, I'm going to sit down, remember who this is, then it comes together. But for some reason I cannot get it, you know, to where there's any clarity in that scene. And so that's been my experience with it. It's one that, like I say, I do feel, you know, that's a very personal position. It certainly isn't that I think anyone who has read it or loved it is just wrong or duped or anything like that. I envy that experience, but I've had to kind of sit back and say, I don't know if I'm ever going to have it with this one. I mean, I think it's absolutely not that you need me to legitimize it, but it's very valid. I mean, it was the one where I told you I had started realizing with some of these Russian novels, I had to keep a notebook. Uh And that is literally what I did. I had a notebook and anytime a character was mentioned, especially in the beginning, you know, however many, hundreds of pages where they're still introducing new characters, I would write down their name and the page number where they first appeared and maybe like a short description. And then if I started to see that they were going to be a recurring character, then I would start jotting down a few more notes or at least like a page number where they were mentioned where after 200 pages, so-and-so reappears and you're like, God, I don't even remember who that is. Uh I would like flip back and be like, Oh, okay. They first appeared on page 17 and here's, you know, so it's absolutely (laughs) not one that you just sit there and kind of, idly flip through and and mm-hmm. i mean it is very propulsive and i think there are huge passages of it that are actually surprisingly i don't mean readable in like a you know i don't know if readable is the right word but propulsive or page turner sections are are definitely present but there are definitely those other passages where you're feeling yourself working i mean i was as i was looking at it it says it involves more than 500 characters more than 200 of them are real historical figures put to life on the pages of the novel. So, I mean, 500 characters in every definition of the word that is epic and also very much intimidating and a little daunting. And like we said, especially when you do like the patronymics and some of the other, you know, the Russian um, tendencies to have, you know, the, the different informal name versus the formal name and the father's name and all those different things where you're, you're, I think that was definitely probably part of it for me. Mm-hmm. is it's easier to keep track of people's faces for me in a, in a movie, you know, oh, than yeah. it is their various names. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no. All right. But uh, yeah, I don't know if you ever decide to, I do. think. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I may, I may. We'll no, see. I'm not trying to get you to commit. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> one thing that I'm realizing here, and this is interesting to me, so I brought up the Count of Monte Cristo, which has mm-hmm. to do with Napoleon. You just brought up World War or War and Peace, which mm-hmm. is Napoleon. Two more of mine directly bring up Napoleon. Oh, interesting. And one of them that is not of those two is in the same, you know, a few years after his demise. I'm wondering if there's something to that. Yeah. Um, why are we Why are we talking so much Napoleon as we talk about? epic you know is this our is this our trojan war <laughs> situation yeah is it makes just you wonder where you know is there or maybe it was the victorians trojan war and so we're just kind of in this mindset of mm-hmm. here are the epics that we can talk about that aren't just the odyssey and the iliad and the aeneid and you know kind of going back to those things no um, i mean i think obviously one of the carry throughs would be the fact that that wars, you know, big wars, world wars or wars that impact, you know, all of Europe, for example, or the rest of the world. I mean, that is definitely one of the things that 
seems mm-hmm. to create an epic or at least lend itself to these. If you have that much ambition to try to tackle something like that, I guess one of the the forms or the the length required would be lending itself to these kinds of books, I guess. Hmm. That's interesting. And the weird thing is my next one is not even an old book. It's hmm. fairly new. It's one we've talked about before and it's fantasy. Oh, cool. I had to see if this could apply. I'm thinking of Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Uh, Norell. Nice. What, what do you think, Paul? <laughs> Epic? It's big. It's got footnotes. Mm-hmm. And it's got it, tons of footnotes. It takes place during the Napoleonic Wars. It's mm-hmm. British history. Mm-hmm. It just happens to have wizards um, fighting and kind of choosing sides and and a fairy world that you know <laughs> has a, has a role to play in all of this. I love this book. You know, we've talked about it before. I, I think it's fantastic. I think it's very well written. It feels like War and Peace in some ways, in terms of it feels like an epic, right? You look at mm-hmm. it, and it's like this big historical novel that again has footnotes and scholarly citations that are all fake, and it's you know Susanna Clark having a heyday with it. And does that does that subvert that it's not an epic? You know that it's. I mean, just a just a fun fantasy. I'm a soft touch when I <laughs> my initial idea for this for this episode until I started getting into the weeds of of like the true definitions. I mean, absolutely to me it, it does, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. I think everything you just said, plus the fact that you are dropped into this world where there's like an implied back history. It's this alternate universe. But mm-hmm. you not yeah. only have whatever it is, 700 pages of actual story, but through the footnotes and all these other things, you have references to these historical documents or other things that have happened in the past that aren't even real. But it creates this this backstory. And then at the end, you know, not to give anything away, but it projects this future in this other world. So, you know, talk about an epic span of time and ambition. I mean, to mm-hmm. me, absolutely. I, I'm so glad you picked it Every time we talk about it, I'm like, oh, I need to read that book again. Because, <laughs> yeah, it like you said, it it does another that interesting thing and much more so than some of the other books we were talking about where it touches on true historical events and characters. Mm-hmm. And then not only does it add in fictional characters living in this world, but like you said, there's a fairy world that's kind of alongside this and all these other crazy things that are happening. So, yeah, I'm and- sold. It's got these big, big moments of battles, even though that's not the focus. Uh, it still, it maybe the reason why I would even hesitate beyond that it's, you know, a, a fantasy. And I know there's epic fantasy. I, mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not trying to say that. I am thinking classical sense of the word here is it feels so intimate again. I feel like it's more about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell than it is about these big events. Because it is very focused on them and their ups and downs and their relationship and how they're, you know, these big events are ways of their, they're testing one another or of trying to see how they each can figure out how are we, how are we fighting with the, with each other or against each other uh, rather than any kind of real examination of like the Napoleonic Wars. I wonder if that's my hesitation. But it has so many great passages that also make it feel epic, even in scope beyond what we've already talked about. There's there's one of my favorite passages 
that I've read in decades, you know, just one that I think back on often, which is when they're in the church, the really old church, I think it's in York, and they start to hear the stones whisper to them about all the things these stones have seen. You know, all these people who have been completely obliterated from history. No one remembers this young girl who was, you know, abducted and, you know, uh, abused next to this stone in antiquity. You know, that's gone. No one remembers who did it. No one remembers the people it happened to. No, There's no memory of that time, but the stone has it. Mm. And it's just, I love that kind of stuff, but it also feels so intimate as it's delving into that scope. And then there's the passage, you know, time and I have quarreled. All hours are midnight now. I had a clock and a watch, but I destroyed them both. I could not bear the way they mocked me. There's that aspect of time as well. You've got the fairy world that makes people feel like they're in the perpetual now and that there is no, no time anymore. And it's just, I, I love its themes. I love its feel. I'm going to say it's epic, but I, I'm not sure yet. I'd be curious about listeners' responses too. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, like I said, I, I, I absolutely think it qualifies. And to your point about not necessarily focusing on, like, the Napoleonic Wars are a background, but that's not necessarily mm-hmm. the main thrust yeah. of it. I mean, I think it could be argued that even something like War and Peace, I know different people come at that, and and it really is divided into sections of kind of, focusing on the war and like the layout of the the battles and the strategies and things. And then there's like parlor scenes or party scenes where it's very much the culture and, and what's going on in other mm-hmm. parts of the world. And I mean, I think depending on how you read that book, it could be argued that even something like war and peace isn't necessarily about, you know, the wars themselves yeah. or what comes out of it. It's the, the people's lives and it's and the them living. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, from that same perspective, I think if you could, if you argue, something like war and peace for those reasons could be then I think something like Jonathan strange ticks enough of the same boxes. If it were real, if there really were these two wizards, this would mm-hmm. be an epic, right? Yeah. Because it would exactly. be about the England's history <laughs> in the Napoleonic wars and these national heroes. <laughs> so well, you talk about how the Count of Monte Cristo, for example, or it, do you remember specific times and moments of your life where you're reading that? I mean, Jonathan strange was one of the most impactful books on me personally that I've ever read as far as just creating those, those memories. And there was, mm-hmm. I read it in the fall cause I got it for my birthday and every year, literally every year around this time or in another month or so, I'd start thinking about that book. Just, it's amazing <laughs> how much that book um, can immerse you in. It's stuck with me for years. Oh, and you're right. It just makes you want to go and pull it out and read it over the weekend. I know. I'm committed to the Brothers Karamazov, but maybe if I decide to do two <laughs> two big books back to back, maybe that'll be the way I go. They certainly feel different. Yeah. I don't think you'd get them confused with one another. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Um, all right. What's your next one, Paul? So my next one is probably, if I was going to say the biggest stretch when it comes to today's category, this one's probably it. But it came to mind for me because of, I keep saying ambition, the author's ambition for this one and then kind of the scope of what it covers. So the one I chose was life after life by Kate Atkinson. Hmm. Um, I've never read it just so you okay. know, I, but I know, I, I know the, the general thing. I remember Simon uh, Savage talking about it mm-hmm. quite often in, in his work. So, yeah, I mean, boy, this book is just, I loved everything about it. 
so I won't give anything away, but basically within the first few pages, it basically drops you in and, and you are in, you know, World War II era. And it starts with the main character. Her name is Ursula. And in the very first scene, she is in a room and she attempts to assassinate Adolf Hitler. I mean, that mm-hmm. is how it starts. So <laughs> immediately we're talking about, we're going back to war and historical figures and big moments. But just like the book you were talking about, obviously this is a, you know, fantasy or at least an alternate universe look at this but what's really fascinating is that scene kind of ends on a cliffhanger and then immediately you are taken back and you go to february 11th 1910 and so i'm just going to read this this little passage here um it says an icy rush of air a freezing slipstream on the newly exposed skin she is with no warning outside the inside and the familiar wet tropical world has suddenly evaporated exposed to the elements a prawn peeled a nut shelled, no breath, all the world come down to this, one breath, little lungs, like dragonfly wings, failing to inflate in the foreign atmosphere, no wind in the strangled pipe, the buzzing of a thousand bees in the tiny curled pearl of an ear, panic, the drowning girl, the falling bird. So immediately after you get left on this cliffhanger of this attempted assassination of Adolf Hitler, that's the next thing you get. And it's, let me see, it's like 20... Yeah, 20 years previous. So quickly you come to realize this is her birth scene. But within those first two pages, she dies. So it's basically a, the cord gets wrapped around her neck and she dies. So immediately, what you know, what's going on here? The next chapter starts and it starts in the, basically the same scene, but something different happens and she lives. And so th- it continues this really interesting premise of various lives that she's lived and she dies in this book many times. It's called Life After Life. And it takes you on all these different alternate realities of what her life could have been based on certain circumstances or based on accidents or based on illnesses. And again, I don't know if it qualifies as the true epic definition, but as far as the ambition of the author and the fact that by the time you read this book, it is amazing how much ground you feel like you've covered. You've lived numerous lives with this person. You've seen her have successes. You've seen her have failures, you know, just all these different ways that a life can branch out and go to me. I mean, it felt very epic by the time I finished Mm -hmm. reading it. Not only did I feel like I had lived her entire life, but I feel like I had lived various versions of her life. And then on top of that, it happens to be placed within this huge upheaval in history, another war. And so she at different times is is trying to live through the Blitz in London. She ends up running in circles with Nazis and other things and other versions of this. So, I mean, I really love this book and I feel like it really blew my mind in a lot of ways. I thought it was really fascinating what the author was trying to do. And I feel like she successfully pulled off something that could have felt gimmicky. But I don't know, that, yeah. that little snippet that you got there at the beginning, I mean, it shows you w- what a great writer she is. So I think that has a lot to do with it as well. But yeah, I don't know. Like I said, it's a, it's a bit of a stretch when it comes to the true definition of the word epic. Well, I think that's part of the problem with the definition. I mean, maybe, mm-hmm. it, maybe it just needs to stay as it is. But women have been left out of some of these conversations or having the role of being like a nation's historian Mm -hmm. for most of the history of the world. Now there are exceptions, but very few. Uh, And, and there, but they, they, there've been so many great books like this written um, 
by women about historical events, you know, but we, maybe I, I don't mean to step on something here, but I feel like historical fiction often gets kind of a bad rap, mm-hmm. but it's powerful stuff. Is this, is this some sexism that plays into this, that a lot of women write great historical fiction, but it's just historical fiction. You know, this is the elevated hero style of the epic. And that's, you know, tends to be more masculine in a way and therefore feels just because of our culture, a little bit more, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because there are a lot of great historical epics that as some of them, I just haven't read, you know, we got Hillary Mantel, with her her trilogy on you know Henry Crom- VIII Crom- and Cromwell yeah. and and Anne Boleyn and and all of that I I really I've read the the first one and I I want to read the others they're just they're big they are and I think I would have put that on my list here as an epic mm-hmm. but what about something like this that's a little more intimate I mean you know feeling it's not quite about these historical events it's actually kind of ahistorical in a way yeah. This this should certainly apply and should should pop into our minds when we're thinking about these things. So I'm you know I'm trying to figure out how much of this is just me and my own you know uh, blindness and hopefully brightening up. But yeah, I'm glad that you put this one on um, because you know if nothing else, it's bringing up this part of me that's thinking there are so many um, authors who are women who have written fantastic books that take place in historical times but i think mm-hmm. we relegate those to kind of a lesser type of fiction than these others and i don't see any real reason for that other than no sexism yeah i agree and i do wonder like thinking about this book in particular obviously based on the first couple pages that i told you it's not that this character is not eventually involved in some big potentially mm-hmm. world changing things but i think in some cases and I don't know if hopefully I'm not stepping on any book that you're going to be mentioning lately or later. So, so we can cut this part out, but <laughs> Olivia Manning, like her books, for example, or, the, I, or di- oh, didn't God. even pop into my mind other than that, because they were long, but they're yeah. absolutely war and peace. I mean, what yeah, the heck? Exactly. Yeah. And I was just going to say like with that or with Kate Atkinson's main character for the most part throughout her various lives, women in these times, often we're not necessarily thrust into like the admiral role or like they're not in the trenches necessarily like Mm -hmm. shooting it out. And so sometimes I wonder if that's where people's prejudices about what an epic should mean, you know, these lives are sometimes maybe, you know, not right in the forefront of like the action of the war, so to speak, but they are very Mm -hmm. much involved in, the realities of what actually makes the war move forward or, you know, there's just mm-hmm. different things like that. So it's like a quote unquote quieter life. Like some of these characters might have, maybe that's where it's the same thing that a lot of women's books have been relegated to this whole idea of like, you know, I don't know the, the parlor or the, you know, the office or different things like where, as if that somehow makes these lives less important or legitimate, which is just silly. So I don't know if that would be something that would be one of the factors. I think so. The they might not have the classic confrontation with the monster, you know. Yeah. It, uh, you don't have Beowulf going and fighting Grendel's, you know, <laughs> Grendel's mother and things mm-hmm. like that. You don't have Odysseus fighting all of these things 
um, that are that you can look at and say, there's the progression there. He's leveled up, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> to the exactly. next thing. And yeah, I, I think that, well, I don't know if we're on to anything, but I think that this is um, worth kind of sussing out a little bit more some, mm-hmm. it, you know, as I continue to think about these things, did you just out of curiosity, kind of as on the side, did you ever read a God in ruins, her, her kind of follow up or yeah. companion to this one? I did. Um, I, I enjoyed it well enough, but I will say it did not make nearly the impression on me that life after mm-hmm. life did. It was interesting because it's been a while since I read it, but it was a very straightforward look at her brother's life. And it did, obviously there was a lot of crossover between the two, but I think one of the things I like so much about life after life was the interesting thing she did with these alternate realities or lives and a God in ruins is very much straightforward. And so it's a very good historical novel, but I don't know. I just didn't know what to expect. And so maybe I went into it. If I had come into it without any expectations, maybe it would have been different, um, I mean, Kate Atkinson is a wonderful writer and I've actually been meaning to read more of her books. Um, but yeah, I mean, God and Ruins, it, it was very good, but it wasn't what I was expecting. And so therefore, I don't know that I got quite the same oomph out of it that I did out of Life After Life. Gotcha. All right, Paul, my next one does not have Napoleon. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, not sure it qualifies that. Yeah, yeah, but... It is epic in many, many, many ways. It is Uwe Johnson's Anniversaries, oh. translated by Damien Searles. This was originally published in German in, in a, you know several volumes and came out from NYRB Classics in a complete English translation a few years ago that runs 1,700 pages, something like that. I mean, it's two books, but mm-hmm. it is it is massive, and it, it takes time and dedication and attention and i love it i've i have uh actually been very tempted to start it again right now because it's you know as it's late august the book begins at the end of august in 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 1967 and it's kind of a holiday weekend we meet gazina crespal she is a single mom um at the at the shore and relaxing for once, you know, kind of getting a little bit of time off. And and then we get into these daily uh, journal entries almost, only they're not like, it isn't a strict journal entry from Gazina Crespal. It's not like she's sitting down in Dear Diary and telling about her day. It's almost like it can be that. You can read directly from her perspective, but other times it's a narrator's uh explanation for what's going on or or description sometimes it's newspaper articles that are in the news on that particular day or that gazina is is reading about and they're beautiful descriptions of time you know this this stopping sometimes of a of a sunset on her way home from work let's say and seeing the sunset in in new york city that are just beautiful and very in the moment but then you've got the year you know in in u.s history you've also got her own past as a german immigrant who has you know her own history and the history of the world and world war ii and and things like that going on and you also have her relationship with her daughter maria and 
especially as you get into the latter half of the book, that relationship and in the scope of history starts to take on so many dimensions of how do you care for your child? When is it that you put that care above some bigger things that are going on? Both because it's the right thing to do, but also sometimes because it's the easy thing to do. You know, that you use that almost as an excuse. It's just, it is a remarkable book in so, so, so many ways. And for the most part, I think people who have, who have read it have all felt that too. But I know some people have had troubles with it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I read it just to read it, I had no issues. But when I tried to do it as a year, you know, as a day-to-day thing where I'm like reading her entries every day, yeah, it became difficult to keep both the, the momentum of the story as well as the finding the time every single day to, to sit down and do that when I'm not maybe necessarily feeling quite as deeply in, engaged in the story as I can be if I'm just going through and giving myself some time with each day. So I've talked about it before, but my preferred way of reading it is just to read it and go forward with it and yeah. not do the day-to-day thing. But of course, I guess whatever way you find to dig into this book, that might, yeah. be, might be worth it. I saw somebody mention the other day, I think they might have been talking to you, that they had just started it based on, like yeah, you said, right. the fact that, yeah, it starts just around, around this time of year. And it did make me think, like, <laughs> because I, I, as I mentioned before, I bought it right when it came out and it's been sitting there calling to me for whatever it is a couple of years now. And I've yet to read it. But man, it just sounds so wonderful and fascinating. I really do need to do it one of these days, but I don't know that it's going to be this year. And it's kind of the quintessential of what I've been talking about with, um, you know, you've got this grand scale, but also these really intimate moments. Hmm. I mean, this book is it for me. You've got these big things happening all over time in many ways, but all within a single day's memory, all within maybe a single moment of that day. And all of this scope of the past and of the present kind of merge into that one moment. So it's exceptionally now and in, in just a way that I, I I loved so much about this book. But uh, that was that was really one of the big things for me is how amazingly it was able to do that. Yeah, oh, that sounds great. I'm glad you picked that one. I was wondering if you might and i'm very glad that you did (laughs) yeah it's it's just it's just a nice i don't know it feels comfortable again i feel like this is a real book of memories for me that Mm. she's like a relative of mine i I miss them i miss gazina Mm. and maria when i'm not reading this book so that's why i also asked you earlier about you know are these books you could just maybe pick up and read a passage from and, and kind of like you're going to visit somebody Mm-hmm. And you get them in that moment, but maybe not the back and forth of, of everything that came before and after. And this is absolutely one of those books I could pick up at this point and read from, you know, January and be like, oh, it's nice to see you guys again. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> well, and it kind of ties into what we were saying earlier related to movies. But just one of those things where I really appreciate that NYRB did that because that mm-hmm. was, I'm sure very involved process i'm sure it wasn't cheap and again it's it may or may not be one of those that's gonna you know fly off the shelves but what an important thing to have available to so many different people and it's in you know it can be in that beautiful box set and it's just as an object it's beautiful too so 
Yeah, every time you talk about Cyril, it. Sorry. No, no. no. For, for Damien Cyril to spend the time translating this. Yeah. I mean, he translates it a lot. A lot. And from multiple languages. He is exceptionally talented and prolific. But this had to have eaten into other jobs he could have done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it, you're right. It, it's so nice that the time was spent to, to do it. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a great choice. I look forward to the day when you read it, Paul, and we can talk about it if you ever do. Oh, but I will. Uh, what's your next one? Yeah, so my next one is a book that we've touched on. I think we've we've talked about this author quite a few times, but I don't know that we've ever dug too much into this particular book. And it's Barkskins by uh-huh. Annie Crew. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this book, I think we have talked about it in the perspective of I think Annie Prue is. My favorite works by her are still and will always be, as far as I can tell, her short stories. I really enjoy her novels, but they've never quite reached that same level of enjoyment for me as her short stories. But that all of that said, the reason that this one came to mind for me, um, for one thing, it's just the sheer time scale that's involved in this book. So this book, I was looking at the table of contents. It starts in 1693 and it finishes up in 2013. Mm-hmm. so you know we're talking 400 plus years or whatever that comes out to um so that's part of it and then also i kept seeing it described as an environmental epic and i thought that was just an interesting lens to look at this through because we've talked about war and some of these other ways that we look at things but this one um includes a wide cast of characters and it basically takes these several families and traces both their personal lives and their interactions, but also the impact that they have on the landscapes of North America. And it drags that out over hundreds of years. Um, and so, yeah, it's provides a very fascinating look at the way in which humans have altered and, and really devastated the forests of North America. Um, I saw Annie Prue in a recent interview with the New Yorker said, or not a recent interview, but around the time that it came out, she said, for me, the chief character in the long story was the forest, the great now lost forests of the world. The characters, as interesting as they were to develop, were there to carry the story of how we have cut and destroyed the wooden world. There was the real tra- tragedy, and then there was no way to make it serial comic. But rather than calling it an environmental novel, I think of it more in the sense of a writerly nod to human interplay with climate change. What some of the humanities and arts are beginning to think of is a cultural response to the environmental changes we've inherited in the so-called Anthropocene. So, when you, I must have read that article because mm-hmm. when you said, uh, did you say environmental epic? Mm-hmm. That we, I was like, oh yeah, because that's really what it's about. Is yeah. it's the, the characters come and go and they have fascinating stories and little mysteries and murders and exploitations of their own. But the, the central thing that's constant throughout is this landscape and these forests. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and And like you just said, I mean, for me, I did enjoy this book, but I think we've talked about how individually some of the different sections are very good and very powerful. I don't know that it works 100% as far as the character arcs Mm -hmm. throughout the entire long book. But like you said, what sticks with me is the impression that I got of just the way that it starts off in, in this very like almost Edenic virginal forest, unlike anything that any of us have ever experienced. And then over time, as it skips ahead to these different generations, you start to see how that's changing. There's roads carved in, 
this, you know, it's covering a lot of the same areas and you start to see the, the devastation and in, in the commerce and how, you know, business and mm-hmm. shipping and all these things slowly, probably not that slowly actually, but they chip away at that. So there's a couple passages at the very beginning that I have stuck with me that I just think are really good about describing the way that the forest was before it was, you know, touched by man. And it says, in a few hours, the sodden leaf mold gave way to pine duff. The air was intensely aromatic. Fallen needles muted their passage. The interlaced branches absorbed their panting breaths. Here grew huge trees of a size not seen in the old country. For hundreds of years, evergreens taller than cathedrals, cloud-piercing spruce and hemlock. The monstrous, deciduous trees stood distant from each other, but overhead their leaf-choked branches merged into a false sky, dark and savage. Achille, the older brother, would have gaped at New France's trees. Late in the day, they passed by a slope filled with shining white trunks. These, said Monsieur Trepagny, and forgive my French that I'll probably slaughter here, were Boulot Blanc, and the savages made homes and boats from the bark. And then it just skips over and it says, How big is this forest? asked Duquet with his whinging, treble voice. He was scarcely larger than a child. It is the forest of the world. It is infinite. It twists around as a snake swallows its own tail and has no end and no beginning. No one has ever seen its farthest dimensions. And so it starts with that perspective of, of the view of these people coming over from, from Europe and seeing this landscape that to them seems infinite. And then unfortunately that turns into, well, it's infinite, so we can just do what we want with it and there'll always be more. And over the decades and the centuries, we see that play out the realities of clearly it's not infinite. And then, you know, they, they start to realize that and, and, you know, how does that impact them and their decisions in their lives? But yeah, to me, like that is the part that will always stick with me from this book is just looking at, it kind of ties into some of these other like nonfiction nature writing books that we've talked about focusing on a place and, and then seeing how that plays out over time. And in this case, it's very much a tragedy in pretty much every sense of the word to kind of see these forests become devastated. Um, but anyway, so as far as epics go, I just thought this was an interesting lens. It's an environmental epic looking mm-hmm. at things. There is a huge human impact, but it's also looking at, you know, more of the geological or in this case, I guess, biological changes over time. Yeah. And it's a, it's, it was on my list of consideration, mm-hmm. but I took it off because I'm kind of like you. It wasn't, I love parts of it. Yeah. Particularly the first maybe half. Yeah. And then I guess as it gets closer to home, the less pleasant I found maybe being in that world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's rough. rough. But probably for a good reason, good good effect, you know, but mm-hmm. it, but it uh yeah, um that's a good a good one for sure. Well, and just to real quickly go back to like the ambition of an author, I think in some ways I've seen it argued that maybe the weaknesses of this book are also kind of what I admire about her purpose with it because she, like she said, it wasn't so much about the people as it is about what's happening to the world. And so for her, it's, it's not an environmental screed or anything like that, but she clearly has a message and you can tell that she feels very deeply about the natural world and the impacts that humans are having on it. And so I think both its strength and maybe some ways its weaknesses are the fact that she never lets that go, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I really am impressed and I admire her for that. But as far as like a work of fiction, when there are weaknesses, it might be the fact that, you know, 
carrying through all that is, is her message more than maybe some of the characters or things like that. Yeah. All right. You ready for my next Um, one? I am. Let's hear it. So I'm going a little bit off the normal pathway here too. Okay. Going back to Napoleon. (laughs) (laughs) But my next one is one I haven't finished yet, but I think you'll forgive me. It is Memoirs from Beyond the Grave by François-René de Chateaubriand. And this came out in its first volume. So I don't know if it's ever been unabridged, come out in full in English. And it's still not there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it is being translated from the French by Alex Andriese. Um, I don't know exactly how to say the last name. But the first volume came out several years ago from NYRB Classics and covered books, I think, 1 through 12, uh, which is 1768, um, the, which is when uh, Chateaubriand was born to the, to the year 1800. And I loved this book, loved it, loved it, loved it. And I didn't know at the time, maybe I asked and I got an answer, but I, I don't remember. I didn't know if they were going to continue and publish mm. the rest of them because this is book 12 of like 45. I, I can't, you know, there's a lot left as Chateaubriand lived um, until 1848 and this ends in 1800. But fortunately, we have, and I have now um, in my hands, the the next volume, which covers the years 1800 to 1815. And so there's a lot of Napoleon in here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and I mean specifically about Napoleon. Yeah, this is book 13 through 24. And I can't wait to, to keep on going with it. It's just... I mean, here, I just I just opened it up. This is page 385, uh, section 8 of book 20. Bonaparte had entered the orbit of what the astrologers used to call an evil planet. The same politics that launched him into vassal Spain now troubled him in acquiescent Italy. What did he gain from these quarrels with the clergy? Were the sovereign pontiff, the bishops, the priests, and even the very catechism not overflowing with praise for his power? Did they not sufficiently preach submission? Did the weaker Roman states, diminished by half, stand in his way? Could he not do with them as he pleased? Had Rome itself not been despoiled of its masterpieces and treasures, only its ruins remained. I hadn't mm-hmm. read that yet, but I really like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just... you you can really open these and his style and the, you know, rendered in this great translation is always so compelling to me. Like I haven't gotten to that part of the book yet, but there's Bonaparte. There's something that I find very compelling about his questioning and interrogation. And again, this is dealing with big, big nation things. I mean, he goes in the first volume, he's in America for part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, right after the revolution and the, you know, the constitutions drafted and, and put, I mean, this is the early, early days of the, of the United States. And then he goes back to France in this Napoleonic period. I mean, it's dealing with so much there, but it's also about him. I think I read on this podcast in the past, mm-hmm. the little prologue where he's, <laughs> I have to publish this book. You know, necessity is making it because I have to. And so here you go. I hoped it would maybe come out only after I died. But, um, you know, it's so compelling. And it's about him as well as, you know, his observations. And he isn't just a historian, even though he is. Um, mm-hmm. But he is commentating on all of this and exploring his own relationships and experiences during this time. 
and it's huge. It's huge. I don't have the first book down from the shelf, but it's this next one's even bigger at around 700 pages. Um, more than that, the afterword ends on page 725. And then there's a bunch of notes that take you, you know, almost to page 800. And this is maybe halfway through <laughs> when you get to wow. the, with the, add this to the first one as well. Yeah. Um, so, and it's an epic I'm still living and can't wait for the third volume and maybe a fourth to come out. I just I would love it if they did all of them. Wish it were faster, you know. I yeah. think they're probably at this point planning on it. What was the gap? But, remind me between when the first one. Do you remember when the first one came out? Because I know this one comes out later this month, right? It's not officially out yet. Is that right? That that's right. I yeah. think it's later on this month. So the first one it says it came out in 2018. That feels too. That doesn't feel like. That doesn't feel right. That's what it's saying. Yeah. It probably is right. Okay. For some reason, I was even thinking 2013. You know, I don't, but I, mm. that's four years at the very least between these two volumes. Maybe it was back yeah. then that I first heard that they were putting them out, but mm. I'll have to look. I'm going to do a little bit of research. Um, yeah. No, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I mean, yeah. I remember after you talking about this first one and, and reading some passages, I, I bought it immediately. I have not yet read it. And then... I've been eyeing. It looks like this one comes out on September 27th, according to what I'm seeing here, volume mm-hmm. two. So yeah. A little plug. Unseen. Yeah. Based on your enthusiasm alone and, and the passages you've read, I will pick up whatever, several thousand pages of this without having read a word. <laughs> and and good to just dig into again. It's, mm-hmm. it, I, I think it, it is one of these that you could read um, just on your bedside table whenever you want yeah. to so absolutely that's a great choice well all right ready for my well, last my last yeah, or, let's, let's hear know. it it might be my first if i was going to say it again this is one that i've talked about a lot but we cannot talk about an epic without um touching on ulysses by james joyce um you know just everything about this one qualifies. i was going I, to just kidding it would yeah. have come up in our honorable mentions had you not <laughs> i figured I mean, this one, the book itself, obviously, just by itself mm-hmm. could be epic. But based on everything about it, you know, 18 chapters following the structure of Homer's Odyssey, you know, so he, it's, he's basing it on an epic, as we've talked about it before. I mean, he I was reading about it and it says Joyce t- was talking to a student about this book. And he said that the theme was, quote, greater, more human than that of Hamlet, Don Quixote, Dante and Faust. So talk about, we talked about, um, you know, the ambitions of some of these authors and, and how um, Tolstoy was, you know, talking about some of those same, like modeling it off of the Iliad. You know, apparently Joyce wasn't content with just modeling it off of one. He was going to try to outdo, you know, every great book ever done. So <laughs> no, but just it's this mock epic, you know, we've talked about different things. There's the environmental epics and some of these different lenses that we can look at it. And I think Don Quixote, I don't know if it would be considered a mock epic, probably, um, but this one, I feel it does that same thing where instead of talking about the wine dark sea, it's the snot green sea, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the monster Cyclops turns out to be this kind of drunken barfly guy who, you know, bullies Bloom. And so it's this idea of taking these huge epic ideas and kind of bringing them home and, and kind of in some ways shrinking them. I saw somebody say he attempted to lasso the epic, you know, kind of bring it down to everyday life. Um, so it's just in some ways it's kind of bringing everyday people 
and showing kind of these, I guess you could say heroic lives that they live in their own little ways. Um, you know, and so anyways, you know, we could talk a lot about the specifics of why this applies, but I think a lot of it's been done. I don't have too much to add other than just to say, you know, it's just fascinating as a, as a read, you can just read it, but then there's so many layers of ways that you can look like I have the big annotated version and you can go through and trace who each character in Ulysses models you know, in the epics. And then you can also, you know, break it down by the different colors and the different parts of the body. I mean, yeah. Hmm. In every sense, I guess is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) And guess who comes up um, in this book several times, especially in, in the part that's kind of written almost as a script because Bloom is wearing a purple Napoleon hat. (laughs) <laughs> yeah absolutely and he talks about napoleon and, and getting uh napoleon's uh measurements when he died and things like that now i don't mm-hmm. you know napoleon comes up a, a time or two in this but not in any substantial way so but still i appreciate you staying on theme and, and yeah and even if you stretched it a little bit <laughs> i do what i can well and i mean speaking of you know the interconnectedness there's also like a lot of correlations that I was reading about between Ulysses and, um, and Don Quixote too, like Mm. where Ulysses, you know, he doesn't make too many direct comparisons, but if I remember correctly, there are several times where it's brought up and, you know, I know that there's been whole schools of thought, probably plenty of thesis, thesis, thesis written on uh, comparing those two books (laughs) to, you know, making connections there. So yeah, once you start exploring and having fun with some of these, you know, there's so many different lenses to look at the epic. And I like both Don Quixote and Ulysses, where they take it very seriously, but they also have fun with it. For sure. I think mock epic is a great way to put it. It, it I mean, he is, in, in some ways, it's a mock, but it, it it is, you've got this mock hero, and you've got this national text in a way about ireland Mm -hmm. which doesn't come off quite as you know it's not quite as heroic as maybe you'd want your national text to be Mm -hmm. but at the same time he's very much using those tropes and you know again like you said referring back to epics just in general but yeah yeah well when i'd seen they said you know one of the the laws of epics that you know if we're going back to kind of the some of the traditional definitions they say that they recall and reshape other epics reinterpreting the old tradition for new times and cultures and i think that's absolutely what this one does and you know they were talking about how you know for example um you know joyce and then like even mark twain with um jim and huck going down the river like they were saying like in Ulysses, you know, you have the two main characters as they're kind of walking around the city and living their lives. And that kind of mirrors, you know, Cervantes and those two going off on their adventures and going together. And then, you know, Jim and Huck floating down the Mississippi, like all these different ways that people continue to take and reinterpret these big themes. It's just very fascinating to kind of track that through time. All right. Well, you ready for my last one? I'm ready. I, I, I wondered if this might be on your list. So I, now I wonder if you will think that's not an epic, Trevor. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I wanted to, to end with uh, George Eliot's Middlemarch. Oh. And the reason why I say, um, you know, it, it, it does it does talk very briefly about Napoleon. 
There okay. is, I think, maybe one mention about the fall of Napoleon um, in here with uh, Dorothy talking with Mr. Casabon, but it takes place in the 1820s, you know, not too long after Napoleon is is gone, um, but much more intimate in scale, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a, a a small village. And so I wondered if this could be considered an epic. Certainly it's long. Certainly it deals with a lot of characters. But what would make this an epic versus not? Well, here's here's the rather lofty language of the prelude. It says, Who that cares much to know the history of man and how the mysterious mixture behaves under the varying experiments of time has not dwelt, at least briefly, on the life of St. Teresa, has not smiled with some gentleness at the thought of the little girl walking forth one morning hand in hand with her still smaller brother to go and seek martyrdom in the country of the Moors. Out they toddled from rugged Avila, wide-eyed and helpless-looking as two fawns, but with human hearts already beating to a national idea, until domestic reality met them in the shape of uncles and turned them back from their great resolve. That child pilgrimage was a fit beginning. Teresa's passionate, ideal nature demanded an epic life. What were many-volumed romances of chivalry and the social conquests of a brilliant girl to her? Her flame quickly burned up that light fuel and fed from within, soared after some illimitable satisfaction, some object which would never justify weariness, which would reconcile self-despair with the rapturous consciousness of life beyond self. She found her ippos in the reform of a religious order. Mm. I initially put this on because I love it. It's mm-hmm. probably my favorite book and because it's long. But as I looked into it more, I'm like, George Eliot knows what an epic is. And she oh, yeah. refers to it specifically in this prelude. And then she basically says, you know, these big stories about massive historical events and these heroic people. I'm going to show you some people who have that same thing going on, but you would never, ever know. You would never see it unless you have the eyes to dig in and get into someone's soul and see just how epic and heroic and devastating and tragic is this one person who is just going about their life in this small village that will, you know, eventually the decades will pass and it will just drift off into time. And so there's my case, Paul. Little March is an epic, one of I, the greatest epics ever written. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you sold it perfectly well. I I think that is what's absolutely fascinating is we talk so many times about these quiet lives. I mean, it comes up probably in every episode, but mm-hmm. can that be an epic? And I think you just made the perfect case of why it's very much the case. And I think it ties into what, to some degree, what Joyce was trying to do, where he did it in a fairly playful way in some ways, but like bringing some of this high language and other things down to this everyday person who's walking around the city and kind of going through these things. And he did it drawing these corollaries between a specific epic, but that whole idea of people's everyday lives taking place and big things Mm -hmm. happening and grand sweeping emotions and all those things. So let me, let me just hit this home. I'm going to knock this one out of the park now. Okay. Okay. (laughs) As we're talking about this epic, going on within the quiet lives. This is one of the best ways I've ever seen this conveyed. And this is right after Dorothea has married Mr. Casabon and is starting to realize this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And Elliot writes, 
Not that this inward amazement of Dorothea's was anything very exceptional. Many souls, in their young nudity, are tumbled out among incongruities and left to find their feet among them, while their elders go about their business. Nor can I suppose that when Mrs. Casabon is discovered in a fit of weeping six weeks after her wedding, the situation will be regarded as tragic. Some discouragement, some faintness of heart at the new, real future which replaces the imaginary, is not unusual. And we do not expect people to be deeply moved by what is not unusual. That element of tragedy which lies in the very fact of frequency has not yet wrought itself into the coarse emotion of mankind, and perhaps our frames could hardly bear much of it. If we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat, and we should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. As it is, the quickest of us walk about well wadded with stupidity. I, I love that whole little passage there of, you know, Dorothea is going through something so tragic and important. But it's normal, so mm-hmm. it's not really regarded as much, doesn't doesn't convey that emotion. But Elliot's able to do that here. Um, it's not just Dorothea and Casabon. You know, I love every character in this book, um, even the ones you're not supposed to love. It's so... Wonderful. And again, here we are, and I'm thinking, okay, I want to read The Count of Monte Cristo again now. Yeah. I want to go start that now. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, Anniversaries. I'm, I'm reading Memoirs from Beyond the Grave, and I'd like to read Middlemarch now. Mm-hmm. And you haven't quite sold me on War and Peace. Yeah. Um, and Ulysses, I've been through quite enough um, recently, but I do want to listen to it again, as you've recommended in the past. But I, I love these conversations. It just makes too. me excited. Whatever I finally can settle down into, um, there's just so much out there. And each one of these, I think, would be worthy of, of time and more attention today. And I'm absolutely going to go and read some more Don Quixote today when I get some yeah, time. That is on my, on my docket for sure. I was going to say, in addition to all those ones you listed, you had a couple of little slim, slim books, Don Quixote and the books of Jacob just lying around, you know, like, yes, no big deal. So two yeah, I'm working on two. I'll read today, you know, to keep, yeah. keep moving through them. No, that's uh, the great thing about these types of books. I mean, any books, but especially these big ones is you can approach them in so many different ways and they're, they're mm-hmm. always there. And part of the epic quality, I think sometimes can be the amount of time that you spend with them where, you know, some small books, like we said, Train Dreams, for example, when I finish that, even if I finish it in one sitting, I do feel like I've lived with that character. And that's why it stands out to me. But I think one of the qualities of some of these big books is just literally the amount of time that you spend with them, whether it's weeks or months or even years that you spend reading these books, by the time you finish them, you've changed, the characters have changed. Mm -hmm. And so I think that also plays into some of the reason that they have such a big impact on us. So do you have any honorable mentions that you, you've you been wanting to just make sure are mentioned here? Yeah, I do. Um, so one that came to mind for me that I think could be argued to be an epic is David Copperfield. You know, the famous opening line at the very beginning, whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. So right from the beginning, it's putting him forth as a potential hero <laughs> and it has a lot of the the scope and and you know it's long and it covers a huge part of his life 
you know, including all the different things that happen. So I think that one could be open for debate, but I think I would argue that it could be viewed as an epic. Um, East of Eden by John Steinbeck was another one that came to mind for me because it has a lot of, you know, biblical allusions, you know, some of the Adam and Eve and, and Cain and Abel stuff that's going on in there, as well as historical scope and a big cast of characters. I think that one could be argued to be an epic as well. Um, do you like Do you like East of Eden? It's been a long of, time one since that I, you... when I read it probably 20 years ago, I really liked it. It's one that I have considered rereading and I'm honestly a little <laughs> nervous. I don't know how I would feel about it on a reread. Have you read it? Yeah. And I, I really disliked it. I love, okay. I, I, and it, it, well, I loved Steinbeck and read that and it made me retroactively start to not like the other books I had previously loved by Steinbeck. Oh, so yeah. so visceral is my my reaction to the very on the nose, um, you know, uh, yeah. Cain and Abel stuff. And I just didn't like it. However, there was the literary disco episode about it a, a year or two, three uh-huh. ago, that they seemed to acknowledge all of the things that I thought were awful. And yet they all came out still really liking the book. And I thought maybe I need to give it another shot. I know. I don't know if I will, but, but I, I, I at least want to say out there, Hey, I did not like that book, but there are those I think who see what I saw and still mm-hmm. came out really loving it. So. And I think my, my reasons for considering reading it again are, are the kind of the opposite where I really enjoyed it, but I kind of wonder if, it was one of those that I read at the right time mm-hmm. where I wasn't maybe, I don't know that I wasn't aware of what was going on, but for whatever reason it worked for me at the time. And I'm yeah. both intrigued, but also a little wary to try it again for fear that it might, you know, have a less um, appealing. And experience. it could have been my time of life too. I read it as part of a Steinbeck course in college and just, you know, we're learning other things about Steinbeck, the teacher, I didn't really get along with the teacher that well mm-hmm, with certain mm-hmm. certain things. And so I'm sure that part of it could have been my own time of life as well. That, that led yeah. me to kind of think this is not for me, but I did, I did love the book we read next, which is the winter of our discontent. So yeah. now it's yeah. been interesting. I think perceptions of Steinbeck, or at least my awareness of perceptions of Steinbeck have changed and expanded, you know, to the point where some people are a little dismissive. Other people really love him. And I don't know. It's interesting to see. I don't know how all of that would play out if I went back and started revisiting some of his works. So I cut you off there to ask you about that. Were there some other ones? Just a few more that I don't have to say a whole lot about them necessarily, but other ones, I mean, Proust, I think, you know, again, it it goes back to some of what we were talking about where in some ways it's very much a personal, it's epic in the sense of, relationships and what he's feeling and it does trace over big passages of his particular life and it's also obviously very epic in just the amount of of reading and and the number of books and all of that um i'm gonna interrupt you again Uh, yeah uh, oh wait you go go ahead and finish before you move on to the next one i just have a question for you okay no all i was gonna say is just the epic the way that short periods of time or memory can create epics where you know, the whole famous passage where he's sitting there contemplating the Madeline and yet somehow that spins out into these, you know, looking back on years and decades of his life. I think there's something to be 
it's like the epic view of memory and and looking back on your own life can kind of create its own feeling of of, of an epic i don't know I'm not putting that very well but you know the role of memory i think is where that one could be argued to be you know categorized this way so what were you well, so going to say you know that i've been I, I I feel like this is going to be one of the more significant reading experiences of my life, and I haven't done it yet, mm-hmm. uh, is finally digging into this. But uh, NYRB Classics, who comes up again and again in this episode, they're publishing James Greaves' translation of Swan's Way next May. And I'm thinking, I wonder if this is my chance to, yeah. to dig into it. I really love the revised Moncrief and, you know, I don't know. I, yeah, I can't remember yeah. all the various things, but I really love what I've read of that translation. Um, and I, but I know that James Greaves is one that people really love too. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he has died, you know, he only translated maybe this one, maybe another volume, but it's not like they're going to release his translation of all seven volumes or anything like that. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm a little scared because it's like, Oh, here comes another one that I need to, I, I need to dive into, I need to get going on this or it's going, mm-hmm. you know, my life is not going to last forever. Um, <laughs> but I get a little bit, I get a little bit nervous, but maybe this will be my chance. I guess, I guess I just, I want it to be the ideal setting, the ideal situation to finally read it. I know. Um, I don't know if that'll ever, ever happen, but I am excited yeah. about it. And I'm excited to see this new translation and compare it with, what I've loved of what I've read of the other one. Yeah, no, that is exciting. And I guess I will say that one thing about some of these books, cause I do the same thing where I want to save them for the perfect time. But one thing I found with a lot of these books is once you get into them, it, it almost creates that perfect yeah. scenario good, by itself. Good point. Yeah. yeah. So like with Proust, when I read it, I don't really remember. I, I do remember a lot of the time that I was doing it, but it's so immersive that it's almost like, you're living that life, so it almost doesn't matter what's going on around you in your real life, if that makes sense. That is that is a good point and worth exploring in and of itself, because I'm thinking that even with Don Quixote, I can look back on this year and the times when I've sat down, and I'll often put it on the floor and lie down uh, mm. on my stomach and read it mm-hmm. under some lamp or something like that. It feels already like those were ideal, the ideal time to read, yeah. even though I was probably like, oh, I've only got you know, a half an hour before this happens and mm-hmm. I've got to steal this time from this and oh, tomorrow at work, I've got this going on. It, you know, these things are on my mind, but it does create in and of itself that, that great moment of reading. That's a good point. Yeah. A, thank you, Paul. Oh, <laughs> sure. So the last couple, just real quick, I won't go, but um, the rabbit series by John Updike, I mm-hmm. think for me, it was another one of those where I have very strong and specific memories. And I felt like it was a very powerful look at, you know, this person's life and, you know, carrying on that theme of what we were talking about from an outsider's point of view, a lot of the stuff that's going on in his life is very mundane and normal. But by the time you finish those books, it feels like you have really lived a life with him and experienced many things with him. I really like those books. Um, And then the last one, just one of my all time favorite books, but Moby Dick, Mm-hmm. You know, again, going back to one of those classics where it probably I don't need to make. I'm sure better arguments have been made for or against it being an epic than I could ever make. But to me, it carries, you know, it has a quest. It has I don't know if they're heroes, but very heroic characters and doing very big yeah. things on a grand scale and, and a lot the of classical is illusions. Lofty. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Uh, definitely one of my honorable mentions too. I only didn't put it on because I, I guess I think I wanted to highlight these other ones instead. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I struggled with. And I feel but, like th- this issue or this episode more than others, I have done some repeats and I was a little, felt a little weird about that. Cause I do like to always talk about new books, but a few of these were just so perfect for yeah. this conversation that I thought it was worth rehashing. And plus how could you ever talk about some of these too much, you know? Well, and that's kind of my thought. And we, we, I think we went different directions with what we were talking about with them. Mm-hmm, um, exactly. Did you consider Lonesome Dove in your penalty box? Is that why it didn't come up? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I just, I was already talking about Train Dreams. I felt like, you know, if I keep <laughs> mentioning these same books every episode, people might start tuning out. No, I mean, Lonesome Dove. Uh, yeah, I okay. think it would absolutely apply. It. It's, yeah, I, I would say that it would easily qualify. Well, and neither one of us brought up the Lord of the Rings, you know, which mm-hmm. we've talked about before. That could certainly apply in its own way and become the epic fantasy, you know, the mm-hmm. granddaddy of them all. But one that I have not finished yet, but that I also think I might would put here someday is in the same vein as Middlemarch, and that's Anthony Trollope's The Chronicles of Barsetshire. Mm-hmm. Um, I love these books. I've read the first two now, and just so much joy. And I love that this this place is going to just get bigger and filled with more people going about their lives and, and having to deal with each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, I love them. I love them so much. So that would be one that uh, is on my honorable mention. I haven't finished him yet. And of course the warden is so short, maybe we didn't, neither one of us put a big series on here as, as an epic thing, but something like that might, might also slip in here. Mm-hmm. Um any that you were, have on your eye, your eye on? I know you're you're starting the the Brothers Karamazov, and that certainly could could be argued to be a part of this. But any others that you're, and I don't mean just the long books. We've talked about that in our, you know, in our episodes. But any others that you think uh, possibly is an epic that I am still thinking of reading someday. Yeah, actually, one that I've been eyeing. I mean, anniversaries that you mentioned is definitely one that I would list is is on that but also um a dance to the music of time by anthony Mm, cole mm -hmm. that's another one that keeps coming up and you know not that they're comparing the two but i like a lot of times when people mention proust that comes up as a you know related topic and so yeah i have those sitting up on my shelf that are definitely calling to me as well and um so yeah i think those that one in anniversaries off the top of my head would be too but i mean i keep mentioning uh Kin, K-I-N, yeah. that came out last year from Archipelago. I mean, that's another one that I've heard described as is very epic and in, in the sweep of kind of the chronicle of this family or multiple families across time. So those would be the three, I think, that come to mind. But I'm sure the longer I think about this, I could probably keep going. <laughs> yeah, something uh, I've been meaning to, to dig into a little better would be the the William Gaddis, uh, the Recognitions and J.R., yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about them to know if they completely apply, but I kind of feel like they could be in this in this grouping. And I know there are a lot of other others. Um, I've never read Don DeLillo's Underworld, which I think might could be, you know, not only is it big, but I think it it's written in order to be that epic, you know. So mm-hmm. but no, those are good ones. And one more that just came to mind for me, um, William T. Volman has that mm-hmm. seven dreams series yeah. that's seven huge, huge, huge books about the North American landscape. And 
each one goes into hundreds and maybe thousands of pages on all these different things. And I think any of those individually and, and especially collectively, I think would absolutely apply. I have a few of them and I keep eyeing them and considering (laughs) them, but yeah, those are both really intriguing to me and a little intimidating, but I know that the people who do love him, I mean, they are just obsessed and really sing his praises. So there's something there for sure. All right. Well, listeners, I uh, thank you for indulging us on this, what has turned into an epic episode. <laughs> uh, uh, we'd love to hear some feedback from you on your favorite epic reads or even your thoughts on whether any of these do or do not apply. Um, and don't forget about the giveaway that we have going on now. Um, we will draw the winner of that giveaway uh, right before we, we record our next episode which will be on Saturday, September 17th. Uh, We are planning on meeting together with Jackie Wine on that Saturday to talk about special uh, grouping of novels, you know, kind of hotel novels, which I'm excited about. And we'll we'll draw the winner of this, uh, this fall book box on that morning. So you have a week and a little bit to get your entries in. I hope you have time. I hope you do it and let us know some of your favorite fall memories on that and we will be back soon see you later thank you for listening to this episode of the mooks and the gripes podcast you can follow the mooks and the gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com on twitter you can find trevor at mooks and paul at bibliopaul you can also get information about future shows on our patreon if you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com mooks. Until next time.